We are Volan's Venators, the drunken cavalry. We cannot march, we cannot fight. What wretched knights are we? But when we see the enemy, our heads are very clear. We charge straight for their baggage camp and liberate their gear. Dogs of War for Hire. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone and I will be your host today. Today's episode, we are beginning a look at the Regiments of Renown for the Dogs of War. We're going to be taking a look at Volan's Venators and Al Mukhtar's Desert Dogs. This isn't going to be a super long episode, but I feel like it'll be a lot of fun. The Dogs of War book from 5th edition is one of the silliest things that Games Workshop has ever published. It's a real treat to go through and read some of the stories, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're also going to be looking at the 6th edition Dogs of War rules so that we can compare and contrast between the two. Before we get into any of that, we have to talk some news and some hobby. The first thing up is a little bit of news. A listener in Australia, and I'm hoping I'm getting your name right, I believe Wen King, he has so generously sent me a care package containing none other than Rapunce de Lioness, in blister, no less. And she is absolutely gorgeous. Wen King heard my episode where I detailed how I had the bottom half of Rapunce and not the top half and how I had owned her in the past. And he was generous enough to send me a new in blister Rapunce. And I am just completely floored by the generosity. That is not a cheap model. And it's just incredible. It really is. So thank you so much for that. I I will cherish it and uh, I will try and do her justice when I paint her up. I still have to get the courage up to take her out of the blister. So that may take some time. But once I do, I will certainly share with you all the results of that painting experience. We now have two listeners, Wen King and Neil, who have sent me... (laughs) Some of the coolest women of the old world. And uh, I, I can't say that I don't hope that trend continues, but I am just so absolutely blown away by your generosity. Thank you so much. In hobby, I have actually done some painting. So my Christmas break was extended because of the latest Omicron spike. We're not doing so hot as far as case numbers go here in Canada. And because of that, I've been more at home than I planned on. So I took the opportunity to do a little bit of painting. I have done up a squad of Black Legionnaires, as well as a squad of Plague Marines for my second edition Chaos Space Marine Army. That has felt really good to do. Did not do a lot of painting over the last three months, so I've been able to get a lot done in the three or four weeks that I have been off school on this extended break. I've also painted up a few models just to paint them. An Orc Warboss for third edition, some Minotaur, and uh, a couple of test model kind of Chaos Warriors, that kind of thing. Just those fun models that you kind of get in your head that you want to paint up for no particular reason. 
the last thing I will mention is that I played a game. And that is a real rarity, even rarer than me getting some painting done at this point. I went over to my buddy Patrick's and we had a game of 2nd edition 40k, My Orcs versus his Space Marines. And that was a blast. It was weird playing 2nd edition with so many models. I fit about 50 plus models into a 1500 point list and for anyone out there who plays 2nd edition, the model counts are much much smaller than later editions of 40k are. A Space Marine clocks in around 30 points per model, all said and done, so you really don't get nearly as much in a normal game. However, Orcs are still very cheap, so it was a much larger battle than it might have been if I was just playing my Chaos Space Marines or something like that. It was still tremendous fun. I think playing those orcs has been the most fun I have had playing 2nd edition, and I love 2nd edition. It is so silly and weird. Unfortunately, did not come out of that game with the win, though I did cause a lot of havoc, which I suppose for orcs is a win in of itself. All right, let's get started with the Dogs of War. The idea of famous regiments of warriors have been around since the Old Hammer era. Things like Scarlocks, Wood Elf Archers, Ruglins, Armored Orcs, they've all been around for quite some time, predating this 5th edition Dogs of War book by at least a decade. But the 5th edition Dogs of War book was the first one that gave regiments of renown a real spotlight and added a new interesting mechanic to Warhammer, that idea of mercenary units that could be taken by almost anybody. The two that we're going to look at today are Volan's Venators and Al-Mukhtar's Desert Dogs. We're going to go over the history of the units and how they play on the tabletop. First up is going to be Volan's Venators. It's not just losing. It's losing to them. They're barely even proper soldiers. No discipline, no uniforms, and the worst breath you've ever smelt on anyone that wasn't an ogre. So why do they fight like the personal guard of the Emperor? Let's start off by sharing the history of Voland and his Venators, as seen in the 5th edition army book. Voland came to Tali from somewhere within the Empire. At the time, he was just one of many mercenary heroes hired by the Talians in their never-ending wars. He rose to prominence as a leader of a band of mercenary knights, which he called the Venators, which means hunters in Low Talian. The motives of Voland and his brother knights could not have been more different from Bretonia or even the Empire traditions of knighthood. They were soldiers of fortune, interested in only two things, namely money and spending it. They were also expert cavalry, whose thunderous charge could scatter the deepest enemy formations, something which the Talians desperately needed, but lacked until that time. Those who joined Voland were often as not the dispossessed and frequently disgraced sons of the rich and famous, owning nothing but magnificent suits of armor and well-bred warhorses. Their ambitions turned mainly to fighting and money, though not necessarily in that order. Not only were they good at fighting, but they were eager to practice and get even better. These young wastrels were joined by renegade knights from the Empire and one or two Bretonian knights errant who somehow forgot their noble errands. 
leading to a lot of good-humored rivalry and brawling. Volin decreed that the Venators should abandon all identifying family crests and adopt new names in order to obscure their true origins. It is rumored that Voland himself was really the disgraced son of some well-known Empire Count. There were also rumors that he was none other than the bastard son of the Emperor. Voland himself never sought to affirm or contradict any of these tales, which consequently grew ever more elaborate and unlikely over the years. The story that he was the shameful offspring of the Fey Enchantress of Bretonia and an extraordinary intelligent one-eyed pig called Eric is one of the less credible yarns spun about Volan's mysterious past. Volan's venators fought their way through the old world, hiring themselves out for gold, which they spent mainly on debauched drinking sessions in which wine was consumed by the gallon. For a while, they traveled east, where they were hired by some of the more desperate of the border princes, tenaciously holding on to their tiny realms in the orc-infested wastelands. For entertainment between battles, the venators joust against each other, while their companions make wagers on the outcome. It is quite common for Venators to be seriously injured or even killed in these fights, or in the drunken brawls which inevitably follow. The regiment is accompanied on the march by a long baggage train of servants, grooms, and raucous camp followers piled on top of the trundling wagons, loaded with casks of looted wine. The noise of their camp can be heard miles away. Voland and his men once shocked Bretonian chivalry by the sheer audacity of turning up at a great tourney in Caron, with their armor still tarnished with the mud and blood of Kislevite battlefields. Despite nursing gargantuan hangovers, and against all expectations, the Venators unhorsed the king's champion and a score of the best knights in the realm. The king of Bretonia was so incensed that he swore that Voland would never enter his realm again except in chains. Despised by Bretonian knights and shunned by the knights of the empire, the Venators care not a fig. They have fought in many hard battles against the worst enemies, in places where nobler and more sober knights have never been seen. That history is a gem. The <laughs> extraordinarily intelligent one-eyed pig called Eric uh, is my, it might be my favorite little bit of apocryphal lore in this book, and this book is full of silly, wonderful things. So in 5th edition... Here is what Voland's Venators look like. They are led by their captain, Voland, of course. Their motto is Voland's Venators. The answer, no questions asked. Battle cry, last one to die is a sissy. Appearance, the regiment wears burnished brass armor and no heraldry except for a V sign. And they can be hired by any Warhammer army except for Bretonia, for obvious reasons. For Voland and four Venators, you will pay 215 points, which is about on par for heavy cavalry of this era. Maybe a little bit cheaper considering you get Voland, who is a hero-level character. If you want to add extra models to the unit, they cost 35 points each. Voland has a normal human hero stat line of movement 4, weapon skill 5, ballistic skill 5, strength 4, toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 5, 3 attacks, and leadership 8. His venators have movement 4, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 3, strength 3, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 3, 1 attack, and leadership 7. And they are on regular old horses. They're equipped with a sword, a lance, 
heavy armor, shield, and barded warhorse. And they have a 2 plus save. Some strengths and weaknesses of this unit. Firstly, the strength is you're getting a hero level character in Volant. And that's kind of nice, and you're getting him at a bit of a discount. So if you compare them to Empire Knights, for example, they're a little bit cheaper on the whole, and for the most part, almost identical in terms of stat line. Now, they're not going to be particularly fast with the heavy armor and barded warhorse. That's only a six-inch move. If you've listened to our last episode with Joe from the Flail of Skulls, you can see the weaknesses in this unit. Also, they can't have any magical weapons or magical banners, which is a very big downside, unfortunately. Taking a look at the regiment in 6th edition, we can see there are some changes for the better, to be honest. Now, in 6th edition, most stats went down, and most points costs also went down to reflect that except for some things like special characters who got ridiculously expensive, but on the whole, regiments tended to be cheaper. Volan's Venators are not particularly changed, but they are a fair bit cheaper here, and they're actually better in some regards. So Voland himself is unchanged stat-wise. He has the exact same profile as in 5th edition, which is pretty good. His Venators, however, are a little bit different. They still have their above-average weapon skill of 4, but now they're also Strength 4, giving them Strength 6 on the charge. The unit goes from 215 points at minimum to 195, and each additional knight costs you only 24 points instead of 35. So this is a unit that got much, much better in 6th edition than it is in 5th edition. So if you're thinking of fielding Volans Venators on the field, that would be the era to do it. Now there is a single story in the 5th ed book that I want to share with you before we move on to Al-Mukhtar's Desert Dogs. And that is The Challenge of Ravola. Anxious to make the arrogant Bretonian dukes and barons respect the borders of his principality, the prince of Miragliano offered a truce. The Bretonians agreed to attend a conference, hoping to gain something by intimidating the prince with the might of Bretonian chivalry. The meeting was to be in the small town of Rivola, the first settlement on the Tilian side of the mountains, and one which was coveted by the Bretonians because of its fine vineyards, even though all the people were firmly for the prince. The Bretonian deputation consisted of many proud and splendid knights, accompanied by their retinues and many heralds versed in the feudal laws of their country. The prince, accompanied by an equally fine array of mercenaries, welcomed them. There followed several days of banqueting and dancing before the serious talking began. Such was the overbearing pride and arrogance of the Bretonians that one of them, called Baron de Boer, declared that the Bretonians were better knights than the Tilians, and so the Tilians had better just hand over Ravola and be done with it. Hearing this, the leader of the mercenary Venators was enraged and challenged the Bretonian to a joust. He was quickly followed by the rest of the Venators, who rose up and issued their own challenges. The Bretonians accepted the challenge with their typical bravado, 
and the Bretonian duke, certain that his knights would unhorse all of the Tilians, offered to relinquish his claim to Revola if the Tilians won the tourney. The prince, always ready to gamble, and knowing that fortune often smiled on the brave, agreed. And so it was arranged for there to be a tourney in Revola in which seven venators would joust against seven Bretonian knights. The heralds explained the rules to the Tilians, who were not greatly versed in this Bretonian custom. They made a point of forbidding the use of enchanted weapons of any kind. The next day the Bretonians and Tilians stood opposite each other on the fields of Revola. Since there was hardly any Bretonian ladies present, the pavilion was full of the fine ladies of Revola and Miragliano, who had come to watch the spectacle. Of course, the Bretonians were so arrogant and conceited that they insisted on asking the ladies for favors. Then a strange thing happened. Whenever a Bretonian knight asked for a favor, he was granted it, and not just a veil or scarf either. This put them in a very good mood indeed, and they made ready to joust with even more than their usual confidence. Soon the jousting began. First one Bretonian knight was unhorsed to the dismay of his companions, then another and another, until all the Bretonian knights had been knocked off their warhorses by the Tilean venators. The contest was fought with blunted lances, so all of the Bretonians survived to endure their undying shame and embarrassment. One of the Bretonian heralds took a look at the broken Tilean lances. Turning to the venators, he angrily shouted that the Tilean lances were longer than the Bretonian ones, to which a Tilean lady replied from the pavilion, Yes, we know. At that the entire field of spectators fell about laughing. The heralds could not argue that the long lances were enchanted weapons, and there was nothing for the Bretonians to do except pack their baggage and beat a hasty retreat from the scene of their humiliation. Since that time, there have been no further claims by the Bretonians to any lands in Tlee. The rumor is that the ladies of Tlee would not have given any favors to the Bretonian knights had not the prince persuaded them with an offer they could not refuse. They did this so that the Bretonians would be so pleased with themselves and so dazzled by the glamour of the ladies that they would not notice that all the Tilean lances were just a little bit longer than the Bretonian ones. That is a wonderful little story from the 5th edition Dogs of War army book. And this is an army book that is full of fun and wonderful stories. I do recommend checking it out if you haven't. It is so silly and characterful. Next up, let's move on to our second unit for today, Al-Mukhtar's Desert Dogs. We never had a chance, sir. They came out of nowhere. Before we could turn, they were in among us, shouting their chilling battle cries as they cut us down. It's true we ran from them, sir, but these were not men. They were demons on horseback. Young Werner Gluck was sent by his parents to an exclusive school in Marienburg, a common fate for children of rich and famous parents who couldn't be bothered to raise their offspring for themselves. As a consequence, childhood was a lonely and deeply unhappy time for him. The schoolmasters beat him frequently, and the older boys adopted him as their personal slave. Werner lived in constant anticipation of a sound thrashing. He learned to endure things by immersing himself in dreams of foreign travel and exotic lands. Years later, Werner Gook stepped from a Tilean merchant ship onto the harbor at Lachik, city of the Arabian Corsairs. His eagerness to travel the world had brought him to the greatest city in Araby. Swarthy-skinned boys dressed in rags scampered about his feet, 
offering to carry his bags and attempting to pick his pockets. He sent them away with a single word of command. The boys gopped in amazement and ran away quickly. They did not expect a blonde-haired, blue-eyed stranger to speak their language, let alone be so familiar with the coarse vernacular of Araby. Perhaps he was no ordinary stranger at all, but the mysterious Al-Mukhtar, the Chosen One, whose coming was foretold that very year. Werner knew nothing of this old legend. He was gratified to find the people of Araby friendly and generous, at least once he had spoken to them, after which they generally stopped trying to steal his belongings. The word began to spread throughout the city. Werner remained oblivious of his growing fame. One day he decided to undertake a journey out into the desert to see some famous ruins. He hired guides and camels and set out eastward. After three days, the caravan was attacked by bandits. Werner's guides ran off as soon as the bandits attacked, except for Blind Ibn, the beggar boy who didn't realize what was going on until too late and then ran in exactly the wrong direction and was easily caught. Werner, being too obstinate to flee, was captured after a fierce fight in which he gave a fine display of fist-fighting, a skill learned by necessity in his school days. The bandit's leader was Sheikh Ahmed Sufti, a son of the sand dressed like his warriors in voluminous flowing robes. The sheikh had never seen an old worlder before, but was impressed by his captive's pluck. The sheikh decided to stake out Werner in the desert and beat him to death slowly over several days. Whilst they were entertained by his cries and pitiful pleading, the bandits would roast one of the camels. After three days of torture and no water, Werner had uttered not one cry of pain, and the only words he had spoken were to defy his captors and curse their closer relatives. The sheikh was impressed, and his men were getting a bit nervous. Surely no ordinary man could endure so much pain. They were not to know that Werner was used to beatings, having suffered far worse at the hands of his fellow pupils at school. Once they had hung him for three days in the flue of the great chimney in the headmaster's study. He had not uttered a word then either, not even when the old Meistergeich had lit a fire to warm his old bones. Werner could hear the bandits muttering about Al-Mukhtar, but he had no idea that it meant the Chosen One. Al-Mukhtar, he cried as loudly as he could. The bandits, who were huddled around their campfire, had grown scared of the old worlder after Ibn had told them the legend and various wondrous things he had supposedly done in Lashik. Also, things had begun to mysteriously disappear, mostly small, valuable possessions, and Ibn was careful to explain that this was a sure sign that the bandits had fallen under Al-Mukhtar's curse. Consequently, when they heard Werner's cry, they threw themselves to the ground, wailing and crying, Al-Mukhtar, Al-Mukhtar, forgive us. Needless to say, Werner did forgive them. In fact, he became one of them. The life of a desert warrior sounded adventurous and exciting. He abandoned his old name, clothes, and habits, and became Al-Mukhtar. Soon the bandits were known and feared all along the coast of Araby. They became renowned as the desert dogs, horsemen of unparalleled ferocity, wielding mighty scimitars of gleaming steel. Their battle cry of Al-Mukhtar became feared throughout the land. Soon the desert dogs became such a nuisance that the sheik of Lashik was compelled to hire them by means of large bribes. At first he sent them eastwards to fight the undead. Al-Mukhtar very much enjoyed traveling the land of the undead, but the desert dogs grew restless, and soon he led them northwards through the badlands and into the border princes. The dashing horsemen proved ideally suited to the fast, mobile kind of warfare in the pioneer country. 
and al-Mukhtar was soon as famous in the frontiers of the Old World as he was in Araby. Only the continued disappearance of small but valuable items from the pockets and saddlebags of the desert dogs continued to trouble the warriors. Plainly, they must fight harder and more loyally to end the curse that their mistreatment of al-Mukhtar had invoked. This story gives off big Lawrence of Arabia vibes, certainly. I do like poor little blind Ibn, and it's neat that he has his own profile coming up here as well, and that's going to continue on to 6th edition. The regiment that is Al-Mukhtar and his desert dogs have a little bit more going on rules-wise than Volan's Venators did. First up, we have Captain Al-Mukhtar, son of the desert, or Werner Gluck, as he is no longer known. Their motto, the desert dogs have two famous mottos. There is the official version, favored by Al-Mukhtar himself, Mighty are the Mukhtarin, and there is a less righteous version often employed by Sheikh Ahmed Shufti. Desert dogs run faster because the trees are farther apart. Their battle cry is Al-Mukhtar. Their appearance. The desert dogs ride white horses and are swathed from head to foot in voluminous cloth to protect them from the fierce desert sun. They insist on wearing this cloth regardless of the climate they find themselves in, or whatever time of day or night it happens to be. All that can be seen are their eyes and hands. Any Warhammer army can hire the desert dogs. Their cost, for Al-Mukhtar, Sheikh Ahmed Shufti, Ibn the Standard Bearer, a Hornblower, and one regular rider, costs a total of 212 points. And this is the minimum that you can hire, and each further desert dog is 12 points. Al-Mukhtar is the regular human hero stat line that you know and love. Movement 4, Weapon Skill 5, Ballistic Skill 5, Strength 4, Toughness 4, 2 Wounds, Initiative 5, 3 Attacks, and Leadership 9. So it should be noted that he has an extra point of leadership over Voland from Voland's Venators. Otherwise, they are identical stat lines. But what makes this regiment a little bit more unique is that there are two hero-level characters. We also have Sheik Shufti. And he is movement 4, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 4, strength 4, toughness 3, 2 wounds, initiative 4, 2 attacks, and leadership 8. So he's a little bit more like a champion for the unit, except he has 2 wounds. Then we have poor blind Ibn, who I'm sure knows nothing about all of those valuables that go missing from the rest of the riders. And he is movement 4, weapon skill 3, ballistic skill 3, strength 3, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 3, 2 attacks, and leadership 7. And then the riders have the normal human stat line. So the same as Ibn, except 1 attack instead of 2. And then they're on regular ol' horses. The desert dogs are armed with massive slashing scimitars. They wear no armor, but carry a shield shaped like the moon. They have an armor save of 5+. plus. Now, they have a couple of magic items that come with the unit. First up, though, is their special rule, Sheik Shufti. The Desert Dog's original leader was Sheik Shufti, and he fights on as Al-Mukhtar's right-hand man and closest friend. This means the Desert Dogs have two characters who can both lead the unit if required. The Sheik carries the scimitar of Daxir, the heirloom of his tribe. And that scimitar is a 25-point magic item, this scimitar is an heirloom of the tribal sheiks of the desert dogs. It was forged centuries ago in the Kasbah of the Daxir, long ago sacked and ruined by the undead. 
The blade is decorated with magical text inlaid in gold. Thanks to his impressive weapon, Sheik Ahmed Shufti adds plus one strength to blows he strikes and plus two in the turn in which he charges. So he is striking at strength six as if he had a lance, and with two attacks at weapon skill four, that's not too bad. The Black Banner of Mukhtarin is their second magic item, and it is a magical standard. The Black Banner is carried aloft by Blind Ibn, the beggar boy, who cannot see the peril he is in, so is always at the forefront of the battle. When calculating which side wins the combat, all wounds scored by Al-Mukhtar in person count double. So if Al-Mukhtar inflicts two wounds and the remaining desert dogs inflict three wounds, their combat score will be seven before adding bonuses for their standard and rank. This can be pretty alright. Where Al-Mukhtar is a hero-level character, he should be good for at least a casualty a turn, one would hope, and that gives them a much better chance of winning any combat. In contrast to Volan's Venators, Al-Mukhtar's Desert Dogs get a little bit more expensive in 6th edition. Their minimum cost goes up to 245 points, and extra riders are now 13 points. Al-Mukhtar and Sheik Shufti have largely unaltered profiles for 6th edition, the biggest change being that Al-Mukhtar goes down to Leadership 8 from Leadership 9. Otherwise, Ibn is still there, the riders are the same, and the warhorses are the same, and they have the exact same equipment. However, in this edition, you will have to buy a minimum of 6 instead of the minimum of 5 in 5th edition, which goes a bit of a ways to explaining the big bump in the minimum regiment cost. Their special rules are fast cavalry, and they still have both magical items. So in this edition, the scimitar does the exact same thing. So Sheik Shufti adds plus one to his strength to any blows that he strikes. And if he is charged the same turn, it is plus two. And the Black Banner of Maktarin has gotten a little bit better in my estimation. When calculating which side wins combat, the banner adds plus D3 to the Desert Dog's scores, so it's no longer tied to how many guys Al-Mukhtar kills, it's just a straight bonus. I like these guys as they are fast cavalry, and even in 5th edition, they're going to be movement 8. They don't hit particularly hard other than their characters. However, they do have the ability to get around flanks. They're a lot more mobile than Volan's Venators are. So they're probably a better choice in 5th edition if you're looking for Dogs of War cavalry. One of my hopes for the upcoming Old World game from Games Workshop is that they give us some regiments of renown. I would love to see some generic Dogs of War, but I would also love to see some of these special regiments. And if I was a betting man, I think I would bet on their inclusion. I don't think we see any of the same regiments that we see in this 5th edition Dogs of War book, simply because Warhammer the Old World is taking place so far in the past that not a lot of these units would have been around. Perhaps uh, Arsenal the Dragonlord might make an appearance, but otherwise I can't see any of these guys dropping in. Maybe Tichi Huichi's Raiders could make a comeback since Lizardmen don't really age. But it will be neat to see what 
the modern version of Dogs of War could look like. The Dogs of War always had an incredible aesthetic. Each one of the units was just spectacular. I think Volan's Venators might have been the most generic looking unit of all of the Dogs of War. The rest of them were pretty out there. It would be neat to see what could be done with modern technology in terms of making some of these units. That's going to about do it for this episode. Just a short and sweet one for you today. I'd love to know what is your favorite Dogs of War regiment. I think mine is one from 6th edition, and I think it is the Cursed Company of Richer Kruger. I just love the idea of an undead Dogs of War unit. I loved that his unit was full of skeletons that were not human. So you had orcs and skaven and lizardmen and that kind of thing. I just thought they looked so neat and they were such a cool idea. But I'm a big fan of most of the Dogs of War, if I'm honest. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the War Games Orchard. If you enjoy the show, why not join us on Patreon? There you'll gain access to all of our bonus content for any level of donation. It's a great way to help us keep going and enjoy extra Orchard content. If Patreon's not your thing, please consider giving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard and The War Games Orchard, or by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. <laughs>